Good morning. Uh, my name's Katie, and our Bible reading this morning is from Ephesians chapter 4. We're starting at verse 17. You can find that on page 1175 of the church Bibles. That's 1175. And we're reading through to chapter 5, verse 2. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted in its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, so that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Thank you very much, Katie, for uh, that reading. And it'd be great if you can uh, keep those, uh, that bit of the Bible open in front of you as we explore it together. You are in great voice this morning, I have to say, standing at the front here and just hearing unmasked praise from lots of people was very lovely. So thank you. Let's, let's pray, shall we, that God will speak to us. Father, thank you that you love to speak to your people. You speak in so many ways, but supremely in your words and in your son. So show us Jesus this morning. And may we hear his voice echoing in our hearts as we dive into his word. For Jesus' sake. Amen. So uh, this is actually the first time that I I've spoken here since we shared the news with the church uh, of our conviction that God is uh, moving us on from above bar this summer. Um, we're fine, uh, just to say, don't worry too much. Uh, there's obvious sadness, enormous sadness, to be honest, because as I look around this morning, there are so many people here that we love and will miss being in that day-to-day -day contact with uh, enormously. But there is also a lot of excitement about 
uh, the future that God has for us. So uh, please be praying for the leadership team. Please be praying for the church. Please be praying also for us uh, as we try and discern God's pathway ahead. And uh, just a, a quick thank you as well for lots of messages of, uh, of support and uh, encouragement that we've received uh, in these days. I have to say, looking back over these 18 years, I still remember the very first time we uh, came to a service at a Bob Barn. We were sitting just over there, uh, just sort of in that front row where uh, she has, oh, brains just gone. Anyway, where you're sitting right there. That's where we were sitting. Um, and uh, I, I still remember, like, almost, almost immediately the service began, actually. Um, we, we, we just realized that we loved this church. And uh, 18 years on, we, we still love this church and will continue to. Uh, we, we also pretty quickly realized that like every other church, uh, we loved ABC and it's wonderful and it's flawed and has lots of problems. We realized that straight away. And 18 years on, it's still flawed and it still has lots of problems. But you know, one of the things I've had to try and learn over these years is that the only way to actually love a church is to love it in its flaws. It's the only way it's possible to love a church. Because a church is a flawed community of flawed people led by a flawed team of flawed leaders. That's true of every church. It's just the deal, and it's true here. And it is actually so important for us that we learn to love the real but flawed version of the church, and don't just love the rather idealized romantic version of it that we sometimes carry in our heads, loving what we wish it was while not loving the reality of what it is. Jesus loves the reality of the church as it is, the flawed but real version he loves and celebrates. And what we're learning from this book in Ephesians is that it is exactly for this real but flawed version of the church that God has the most extraordinary plan in his purposes. Because he wants this unity in diversity of our life together to be the evidence to the world now of his ultimate vision and plan to bring unity in diversity to the whole of creation. It's the most astonishing plan. And we might wonder why God has entrusted it to flawed communities of flawed people led by flawed teams of flawed leaders. But he has, because Jesus loves the church as it is, and he has great purposes for us. And don't we, uh, don't we just need that message so much right now? Don't we so much need to be this church, this unity and diversity church in a world which is just bleeding with fragmentation and pain at the moment? Obviously, we're thinking of Ukraine so much, but it's not just Ukraine, is it? Fragmentation is all around us in the culture wars, in political toxicity, and sometimes right, right close in our own lives and relationships as well. So 
How is it possible for the church to have this astonishing role in the purposes of God when it is this real but flawed version? How is that possible? Or has God made the most profound mistake by trusting this mission to the church? Well, I want to suggest to you this morning that the logic of where we've got to in Ephesians is that the only way the church can fulfill God's purposes for us is if we are a community where change happens. Not always the first word that we associate with church, let's be honest. A community where change happens. And where change happens, not just at that wonderful moment when people first become a Christian and they go from darkness to life and death to, uh, darkness to light and death to dark. You know what I mean? <laughs> My brain will start working sometime this morning. Not just that moment at the beginning of the Christian life, but a community where change is a way of life, where transformation is continual, where we change all the time because we're growing all the time. To be honest, that's what the whole of the rest of Ephesians is about. It's about change, and it's about change in every corner of life, quite literally from the bedroom to the boardroom, the whole lot, because the vision for discipleship in the Bible and the vision for change in the Bible is a 24-7 vision. It's not just the religious bits. It's transformation in the whole of life. But before we plunge into all the detail of that, we first of all need to know, is change actually possible? Or is it just a pipe dream that will never happen? Is change possible for me? Is change possible for us? And if so, how? That's really the focus of these verses that we've read today. And there are four key ideas to grasp from them, four key ideas about how change can happen when Jesus steps in. To our lives. Number one, real change requires a new way of thinking. A new way of thinking. Verse 17, I tell you this, Paul says, and I insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Get that? In the futility of their thinking. Now, Paul could perfectly well have said, you really mustn't be like the Gentiles because, as he says in verse 19, they're idol worshippers, impure and greedy. So stop it. But it's not what he says. He says, we mustn't be like them anymore in the futility of their thinking. That's the emphasis. And he's not just talking about our intellect here. He's talking about our values. He's not just talking about what we think. He's talking about how we think, the whole way that we view the world. So in what he calls here the Gentile world, it's really a shorthand for just saying the world cut off from God, the unbelieving world. It isn't just that people do bad things. It's verse 18 that we have hard hearts. It goes much deeper. Those hearts are closed to God so that, end of verse 18, we are ignorant of him. We are alienated from him. And when our hearts, our hearts are cut off from God, the result is, verse 18, we don't see things as they really are. So our thinking is futile. And verse 19, we become slaves of our desires, trapped in impurity and greed or in nationalism and selfishness, trapped by the way we think. 
But if the problem is fundamentally in our thinking, of course, that's where the solution has got to begin as well. And sure enough, that's what happens in verse 20 and 21. That, that futile way of thinking and living, Paul says, verse 20, is not the way of life you learned. Notice that word, learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Do you hear that? These are all words to do with thinking, hearing, learning, teaching. That's how the change is coming about. It's a change in our thinking. And this gospel truth, verse 23, that they heard made them new in the attitude of their minds. There it is, transformation of our thinking. The good news of Jesus came to them and it changed not just their behavior. It changed the very structure of their thought, the whole way that their worldview hung together. It changed them. A few years ago, most of you know, I had a period of depression. And during that time, I was having some really helpful counseling. And one of the key things that I learned in that process was that behind every emotion or decision or action is a way of thinking which has formed that emotion, that decision, that action. And that the only way that I could change that surface stuff of the emotions and the decisions and the actions was by identifying and learning to challenge the underlying thinking. I had to learn to think differently if I wanted gradually to feel and choose differently as well. Perfectionist thinking, where you have this ideal you can never live up to. Idealist thinking, similarly. Or my one, need for approval thinking. I need to feel everybody loves me and is on my side. And if I can't, then I can't cope. Or narcissistic, self-oriented thinking. All those ways of thinking. If we want to change deeply, we have to let them go. For those of us for whom perfectionism is our way of thinking, let me just say, it's a really unhelpful name because on the whole, perfectionism makes you think that's a good thing to embrace. If we were a bit more like that, we'd be a bit more perfect. Honestly, perfectionism is one of the most destructive ways of thinking that we can ever embrace. It's just something we've got to learn to let go of and challenge if we want to change. And I think Paul would absolutely agree but the thing is, for Paul, this goes beyond therapy for disordered emotions. That's not unimportant, let me tell you. It's been so helpful for me. But this goes beyond that. It's actually about a transformation of a disordered life in the round, the whole of life. And all of it comes back to a transformation in the way we think as we embrace the truth of Jesus. Paul is saying, look, our thinking has become disconnected from God so that we push him out to the margins or ignore him altogether. And as a result, our lives have become disconnected from their fundamental purpose. And it's when God speaks in his son, Jesus Christ, that change can begin to become possible. But if we're serious about change, we've got to be willing for the very way we think to be changed by the truth of Jesus. Real change requires a new way of thinking, 
Second, real change comes from embracing a new identity. Verse 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, here's the identity language, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, which is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, pause on that language. It's absolutely essential for us to get hold of. Paul's saying, there was an old me that existed before I put my trust in Jesus. But there is now also, if I'm a Christian, a new me that began to exist the moment I met Jesus. And the thing about this new me, end of verse 24, is that that new me is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That is amazing. But look, there's a huge question. Which of those two me's is the real me? Is it the old me that existed before Jesus broke into my life? Is that really the real me? Or is the real, real, real me the new me that began to exist when the Holy Spirit came and made my life new? Which one is the new as the real one? I think it's a hugely important question for us to wrestle with. Because to be honest, every time I say, do you know, I've just got a bad temper and I tend to treat people badly, I'm just like that. You'll never change me. Every time I say that, I'm saying that the old me is the real me and will never change. Because the new me isn't like that at all. The new me, verse 24, is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And God isn't like that, is he? So I'm saying, no, this is the real me. It's the biggest lie you can continue to embrace as a Christian. Every time I say, look, I, I, I just, I'm addicted to pornography. I, I know it's wrong, but it's just me. I, I can never change. There's just nothing I can do about it. You hear what you're saying? You're saying the old me is the real me. Because remember, the new me, the new self is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And God doesn't objectify women. He's not like that. And he doesn't abuse them to put them in the position that women have to get put in in order to be the subject of pornographic imagery. God isn't like that. So the new me isn't like that, even though this old me can feel mighty strong sometimes. But which is the real me? Do you see the importance of that challenge? It seems to me there is nothing Satan wants more than to hardwire our brains to believe that the old you is the real you. Because if he wins that battle, he's pretty much won the rest of them as well and you will never change. Which is why Paul says, verse 22, that the key to change is to take off the old self and say, no, it isn't me anymore. I won't be defined by it any longer. It has no rights over me anymore. I'm saying no to its influence, however much I may struggle. But if that's as far as we go, we'll never get anywhere 
Because at the same time, he tells us there's something else we've got to do, which is to put on the new self, to say yes to God, to what God has made me in Jesus Christ, and to realize that this new me is now the true me. It even rhymes, doesn't it? The true me is the new me. Remember that one. Write it down. I have been remade in Christ as a child of God. And this new me is created to be like him in true righteousness and holiness. That's who I am now. The true me is not a slave of anger, lust, the need for approval, the need to be in control. No, the true me is in Christ and like God, and that's awesome. And this challenges a lot of the ways that we think as secular people now. You see, to this new self, sin is not authentic self-expression. It's a denial of who I absolutely am in Christ. And obedience isn't repression of my true self. It's actually being true to that new self. Can you see this changes the whole way that we think? So when you get dressed every morning, look in the mirror and tell yourself again who you are. And take away that old self and say no to it. It's not going to define me today. And put on and embrace the new self and say, I'm so glad to be who I am in Jesus Christ. Real change comes from embracing a new identity. But real change is not accidental, number three. Um, on Tuesday at Connect, Tani Pryor, who I think is sitting somewhere over there, uh, did a brilliant session for us older adults talking about how many of our musculoskeletal problems, aches and pains, can be addressed simply by embracing some patterns of regular exercise. And I had my own private session afterwards to help with a few of mine, which was wonderful. And do you know, it's similar, actually, in addressing patterns of sin and dysfunctionality in our lives. If we just sit there waiting for change to happen, not much change will happen. Because there are steps that we are meant to take and to keep taking. Which is really just to point out that all the things we looked at in the previous section are not just statements about the old self and the new self. They are commands. They're things we need to take responsibility. Put off your old self, he says. Take steps to cut the bad stuff out. Put the filter on your phone. Embrace a habit maybe of breathing slowly before you shoot your mouth off. End an unhealthy relationship that's having a bad effect on you. Put off your old self. But change never happens if it's just negative stuff that we're going to get rid of. We've got to work out the positive. Put on the new self as well. And that putting on begins with our minds. Be made new in the attitude of your minds. In other words, identify the way of thinking that is feeding the behaviors of your old self and challenge that way of thinking with the truth of who you are in Jesus. Now, sometimes we can't figure that out for ourselves. That's why counseling can be so helpful to help understand what are the patterns of thinking that are actually pushing my behaviors and emotions in this direction. Because the change won't be real until you identify those and deal with the patterns of thinking. Be made new in the attitude of your minds. And then 
put on the new self, accept who I really am as a child of God in Christ, and then move into the world in action as that new person. When I walk into the office on Monday morning, which me is walking into the office? Is it the old me that's being corrupted by its deceitful desires? Is that the me that is going to project itself into the world on Monday morning? Or is it going to be the new me that's created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness that turns up nine o'clock tomorrow morning? Which is it going to be? Well, which one do you put on when you get dressed in the morning? Real change is intentional, not accidental. And then finally, and just briefly, real change is gritty and practical. It's all great stuff, but so far it feels like theory so far, doesn't it? So verses 25 to 32 give five worked examples of how this stuff actually lands in lived experience. I'm going to list them all out, but I don't have time to dive into most of them. Just checking how long I do have. I've got four minutes. So, just going to dive into two, but I'll mention them all. The first one has the clearest pattern. Verse 25, truth in conversation. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood. There's the old self to get rid of. Speak truthfully to your neighbor. There's the new self to embrace. Because we are all members of one body. There's the new thinking that undergirds it. We all belong together. Does that make sense? Therefore, truth in conversation. That one's easy, but it's what Chris talked about last week, speaking the truth in love. So I'll move on. Verses 26 and 7 talk about resolution in conflict. And the same pattern is there, but the order is slightly different. Now, I find this one really hard, so I'm just going to pause on it for a moment. Same pattern, different order. The new self is where it begins. Verse 26, in your anger, do not sin. Not a great translation. It's a quote from Psalm 4. A better translation is, be angry and do not sin. It's what the psalm says. God gets angry, so anger isn't always wrong. And so instead of doing what I tend to do, which is to pretend I'm not angry and I'm just a nice guy, really... I need to learn sometimes to be angry, but not to sin in being angry. In other words, to be angry with what God is angry about, but to handle it with self-control and not destructively. That's the new self, learning righteous anger. But then the old self is about unresolved anger. Verse 26, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. In other words, stewing on something but not saying anything for days, for months, sometimes even for years, but instead just trying to punish the person by your silence. It's terrible for your mental health and it's terrible for your relationships. It will make your relationships toxic. I know because I've done it too often. But Paul is saying, no, have the conversation. Have it soon. Have it with humility and be ready to move on. Now, I know that's not always possible. There are some relationships which are so abusive that a conversation isn't possible and isn't wise. And we can only take our anger to God and ask him to help with us. I know that. But friends, hard cases make bad law. Usually there is a route that we can take 
if we're willing to have the hard conversation. And when we do, often our anger can be resolved. Don't let the sun go down while you're angry. But then there's the new thinking that underlines it. Verse 27, don't give the devil a foothold because unresolved anger turns to bitterness. And when bitterness gets established in your heart, Satan has a foothold in your life. Friends, why do we give him so many easy victories? We need to change. Resolution in conflict. Verse 28, sharing in the community, but we're going to come back to that more in our workplace session in a few weeks. Verses 29 and 30, grace in conversation. You'll see exactly the same pattern there, grace and truth in conversation. But then verses 31 and 2, forgiveness in community. Verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. There's the old self to get rid of, couldn't be clearer. It doesn't mean avoiding the hard conversations as we've seen, but it does mean don't fight dirty, don't be aggressive, don't be manipulative, don't be close to reason, don't try to destroy another person's character or reputation. Get rid of that rubbish. And then the new self... End of verse 31. Uh, Sorry, verse 32. The new self, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another. Compassion and forgiveness. That's the new self to embrace. But then the new thinking is, just as in Christ, God forgave you. There's the motivation. Forgiveness is so costly, isn't it? It was to God. It cost him a calvary to forgive you and me. So it shouldn't surprise us when it costs us a lot to forgive someone. And forgiveness is sometimes complex. It doesn't always mean protecting a person from the process of justice. And in traumatic and abusive situations, it doesn't always mean that personal reconciliation will be possible or wise. I understand that. But still it is a letting go of hatred, a letting go of our right to be the judge, a commitment to pray and where we can to act for their good and for their blessing. And if we've truly experienced the extravagant forgiveness of God in the cross of Jesus, is it not unthinkable that we wouldn't learn to be some of the best and readiest forgivers on the planet? Can I just ask you whether that's true of you? Are you one of the best forgivers that you've ever met other than Jesus? What a great thing to aim to be, forgiving one another, just as in Christ God forgave you. And so the conclusion, verses 5, 1 and 2, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Change is possible because the Father loves us. Change is possible because Jesus died for us. Change is possible because the Spirit has been given to us. But we have to walk the road of change. And friends, faced with the unfathomable love of the cross. How can we stubbornly remain the same when such a price was paid for our freedom? Lamre is going to lead us in response and into communion. Thank you.